Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here are your hosts, Emerson Fersh and Amy Lenouble. Welcome to another episode of Upthinking Finance. Carl Sagan once said, we can judge our progress by the courage of our questions and the depth of our answers, our willingness to embrace what is true rather than what feels good. I want to welcome everyone across the globe and wish you happy holidays to the last episode of Upthinking Finance for 2023. And it's also my pleasure to introduce today my co-host and business partner and friend, Amy Lenoble. Hi, yes, and happy holidays to all our clients listening. We're so grateful for everything you do, and I'm so excited to be here. So for everybody who's either a client of ours or who's been watching this podcast for a while, you know that we don't stick to the traditional narrative, whether it's geopolitical views or even in the investment industry. And to that end, we seek out and embrace opinions from those of people who come at it from a completely different angle. Today's guest is one of those people who we've hired as a consultant, who's been working with us for about a year, who isn't directly related to the investment industry, but who's brought inspiration and ideas to us that have helped us not only better serve our clients, but also better run our practice. His name is John Smart. He has a master's of science in future studies from the University of Houston and a master's of science in physiology and medicine from UC San Diego in California. He has 22 years of experience as a foresight educator, complex systems scholar, and student of technology, dynamics, threats, risks, and uncertainties. As founder and CEO of Foresight University, His focus is on the psychology of foresight and leadership and foresight and action practices for individuals and teams. He's written on a number of topics over the years in his textbook, Introduction to Foresight, which was published in 2022, is a primer on personal team and organizational foresight practices. John has spoken all over the country to university audiences, to a variety of different corporations and law enforcement organizations, as well as different divisions in the military. On a personal note, he was our keynote speaker for the Capital Investment Advisors client event, which was held in 2022. Yes, John is such a wonderful person. And as Emerson said, we've seen so much growth in our company through our sessions with him, but also in my personal life, in my personal life, my character, how I think, how I make decisions, um, has been greatly impacted by both John's wisdom and foresight. He's absolutely a paramount part of our firm at Capital Investment Advisors. We're so glad that he's here today. Well, it's our pleasure to introduce today John Smart coming to us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome to Upthinking Finance. Oh, it is an honor to be here with you guys to have this time to spend talking about foresight and how we get better at adapting to the future. It's been a real uh, pleasure to know you guys and thank you. Thank you, John. Well, cool. So why don't we start with kind of the obvious question? Maybe you could explain to the listeners what being a futurist is and the psychology and practice of foresight. Okay. Well, when we think about the future, I've been in this space for 20 years now. I was an entrepreneur previously, sold my company. What did I want to do for my second act? I wasn't sure. But then I realized since I was in high school, I've always interested in thinking about where the world's going. And there, I discovered in college that there's actually a place you can get a master's or a PhD in thinking about the future. And that's uh, the topic is called strategic foresight. And there's 27 places around the world, four in the United States. I got my master's at the oldest program of those 27 called the University of Houston in beautiful Houston. Went there in the summer. <laughs> you can imagine what that was like. But what a great experience. Uh, 
learning that since the 50s, people have been trying to formalize this idea of thinking about the future. And our field breaks down thinking about the future into two things. The tools and methods we use, that's called foresight, and the stories we trade in the various domains that we're interested in. That's called futures with a plural because there is no one singular future. There's many kinds of futures. So if you are an organization and you're trying to justify your desire to help them think better about the future, you need an elevator pitch for how to use foresight and why it's important. And the elevator pitch that I like to use is foresight is anything you do before strategy. And if you don't do anything before strategy, you're just jumping into the stuff that's been taught since the 30s at Harvard, strategic analysis, collecting data, making some models. If instead you collect trends, you collect various people's stories about the future, if you construct scenarios based on some important and uncertain axes, if you do prediction markets where you get people to actually predict so they have skin in the game, if you create models for what you think are the causal drivers, the so-called macro trends, right? And the drivers underneath them. If you just do brainstorming, all that's foresight. And if you give yourself permission to do it prior to strategic planning, what you discover is there's kind of two fundamental dimensions of this discovery. There's the knowns and the unknowns prior to creating strategy. And that's called predictive contrasting. What can we predict that's relevant to strategy? And what can't we predict where we know we're going to be surprised? That's the uncertainty we have to wrangle with. And how are we going to wrangle with that uncertainty? What are our weak signals? What are we looking for? What are we monitoring? It's called scanning. That's one of the fundamental tools we use, environmental scanning. And when we get a weak signal, how do we interpret that? Then you take that up to strategy and then you review it, right? So that's the basic concept of foresight. You can divide strategy into visions and risks as well. So knowns, unknowns, visions, risks. That's called the cover model or the cover pyramid because visions and risk, VR, they sit at the top. That's strategy, right? The positive and the negative, the things we want to steer toward and the things we want to protect against. But knowns and unknowns sit at the bottom. You remember Don Rumsfeld, you know, the knowns and the unknowns, right? It's like you start with the knowns that are relevant and that's intelligence, right? And that's looking to the past and the present. You can't understand the knowns that are relevant unless you're looking at the past and the current environment, and you're really monitoring that. And then once you've done that, you're ready to wrangle with the unknowns. Does that make sense? If you haven't given yourself permission to actually pull that data out, if you don't have learners in your culture, right, or on, in your process to pull out the relevant data, well, you're going to get blindsided by things you could have predicted, demographic trends, technological trends, sentiment changes, financial trends, all those things. If you don't have a sense, but then for yourself individually, of course, there's other kinds of things that are knowns that are relevant, right? So I wrote a book trying to put all this stuff together called Introduction to Foresight. It took me six years to write it. I'm going to wave it here for the viewers. And it breaks foresight methods into these three basic areas, the personal methods we use, the team methods, you and your relationships, and then the organizational methods. Most people who have heard of foresight, they think, oh, that's scenarios, strategic planning, that's trend analysis. Well, that's organizational. There's actually two levels below that. How you think about the future, starting with today, right? What you're going to get done today or the next few hours if you're setting up a scheduled block of time, right? 
And then how do you relate to your team and what ways of future thinking are they using and what are they skipping? And as I learned, as I researched this, we feel the future first and we think second. So this is a famous Daniel Kahneman's book, Dual Process Thinking, right? Thinking fast and slow, New York Times bestseller about 10 years ago. And what this behavioral economist discovered, Dan Kahneman and Amos Tversky, his partner, collaborator, is we go to our system one is this unconscious, largely emotional, intuitive. We feel. Does this feel like a safe environment? Or, hey, is the hair on the back of my neck going up? something wrong here. My spidey sense is telling me there's something wrong with this conversation I'm having with this person or this investment I'm considering doing, whatever it is, something's wrong. And so then you want to check in with your emotion and get it settled. Otherwise, your thinking can go way off track, right? You can get so-called amygdala hijacking. It's the famous phrase, right? And of course, the media is going to constantly do that to us because It's trying to get us to emotionally care, usually on the negative side, occasionally on the vision side, but usually like, oh, fears and risks that they're going to blow out of proportion. But we got to get our emotions back in track. And a really famous book that's kind of a cornerstone of my book came out uh, 13 years ago called Rethinking Positive Thinking and positive psychology movement that we've all learned about to thrive. You want to have a vision, a positive vision. What she discovered is with a bunch of randomized clinical trials is if you just have a positive vision and then you go into foresight and then action, okay, I'm thinking positively. Now I'm going to make a plan that's with my positive vision. Then I'm going to act. What she discovered is you're actually going to predict the future much less effectively and you're going to get a lot less done. So your ability to see the future and your ability to actually do things your motivation goes way down. Compared to what? Compared to thinking about the future positively and then getting scared for the same amount of time, (laughs) putting on your risk hat. I have these positive visions now. What are the risks? And you have to make that relative to your plan based on past behavior by me. (laughs) Self-assessment, right? This is a risk for me. This is a potential thing that will knock me off my plan. If you're making a plan for the end of the day or a plan for the next few hours, That's a very nice, tight plan. You can be able to review it right at the end of that and learn a lot. What she discovered is you're going to actually accurately predict how much you'll get done in that time box. You'll 100% increase in your predictive capacity, 50 to 100% based upon all the different types of challenges she had people do, like doing more SAT work, getting more of a particular task work done, making a behavior change that I don't want to do. She actually did things like for weight reduction, for eating more fruits and vegetables, for behaving better with my spouse. She's done all these wonderful tests. And what you want to do is you want to think positively and then think negatively the same amount and then make your plan. And your plan has to have at least one if-then statement in it. If this problem comes up, then I'm going to do this. Because you audited based on risks. What do I tend to do as a problem? Or the environment I'm in, what are the typical traps of this environment, right? And so we feel the future first, and we have to do this called sentiment contrasting. And what I added to the field was, okay, that's visions and risks. That's the top of the pyramid. That's what we care about the most. What I basically showed is knowns and unknowns, they're just as important, but we don't care as much about those because they don't engage our emotions. So we got to pull the relevant knowns out. We got to do some research before we make the plan. Once we have that, okay, what are the relevant unknowns? Can I wrangle those a little bit? If this thing comes up, how am I going to deal with that? And in your organization or on your team, you're going to have people 
who like both sides of those. Some people love uncertainty, the creative types, right? What I showed is that this pyramid, the people who love the knowns, they're the protectors. The people who love the unknowns, they're the creators. The knowns people are past focused. They know the history and the data that's relevant. The unknown people are kind of artists, the creator, the designers. They like the possibilities, the entrepreneurs. And in a typical organization, those two groups are going to kind of fight each other. There's a bit of a conflict there that's really useful. And then once you have that, you're going to have the conflict and strategy at the strategy level between the optimists and the pessimists. There's psychological terms for those too. There's strategic optimists, those people who naturally go to the possibilities first in their head. And then there's defensive pessimists. They naturally go to the risks. And the defensive pessimists are going to prevent you from hurting yourself. And the strategic optimists are going to show you the great things you could do that you're just ignoring currently. And of course, we do, as audience showed, we do this in our own head. We have strategic, optimistic and defensive, pessimistic thinking styles. And as I'm trying to say, to close my loop here, the full cover pyramid, the full cover steps, right? Covering all your bases before you make a plan. That's my little acronym, right? K-U-V-R. Well, we also go to data, knowns, and we go to unknowns. We do that all the time. And so if we can actually keep all those processes in our head before we make a plan, boy, it's going to be so much better. That's so awesome. Thanks. I'm definitely a defensive pessimist and my amygdala is frequently hijacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, right? These are my confessions on upthinking finance. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so useful for you to be in a team relationship with someone like Emerson. He goes to opportunities and thinks, how could I execute that opportunity, right? And to have those two, it's called a trusted conflict, right? You can have a trusted conflict. And the term in psychology is psychological safety. And the classic book is Amy Edmondson from Harvard, The Fearless Organization. How do you create a fearless organization? She's done all the research on psych safety, right? Well, you have to have psych safety on your team. You always have to trust each other to speak frankly. And there's so many tools you can use for that, too. Like you, Amy, in a group, if the group is, let's say, really being led by somebody who is very visionary, very driven, and there's a lot of ego or money involved in the decision, the organizational decision, you may not be allowed in a typical strategy meeting to voice your concerns. Even though you see the problems, right? The roadblocks ahead. Here's the big rock that we might hit in the rapids, right? But if the leader is willing to do a project pre-mortem occasionally, you'll get to do that. And the pre-mortem takes all your silent defensive pessimists and gives them voice. And what is that? Project pre-mortems, you can look at that on the web. You'll see all these wonderful tools organizations use to do that. It takes just a few minutes. It's somebody in the organization, typically a deputy, typically not the actual leader themselves, because that's too much ego and there's too much risk to critique the golden cow project in that setting. But if the leader deputizes someone to do a pre-mortem, well, everybody gets a three by five card. Please write on that card the one thing you're most concerned about and send that up. And without attributing who said it, the deputy is going to pull a couple of those and then discuss them in group. And suddenly, boom. You've just shifted the whole conversation, and now you're as empowered as the optimists were previously. And Irving Janus was the first to identify that problem. It's called groupthink. That's the really simple term. But how does an organization get out of groupthink? Well, you got to break it. 
and push them. Sometimes everyone's in defensive pessimism. You got to push them into optimism. And that's called stretch goals, right? Anyone who's ever done a stretch goal session, you're not just going to make the goal as obvious. Everyone's going to have a, put the visioning hat on for a few minutes, right? The happy hat. Man, what if we got that thing? That's a hard thing, but wow, it's a hard and good thing. And sometimes you got to shift if people are being super defensive into that, right? So that's the simple model. And I think it's so helpful to know we can use that in our own brain as well. We don't have to just do it in a team. We can do that in our own conversation, right, with ourselves. Yeah, that's so good. And I do agree. Yeah, Emerson and I definitely <laughs> conflict well. He is the strategic optimist of the group, and I'm the defensive pessimist, but it works. But I know in future studies, and it's been a big part of your personal career and journey, there's something called accelerating change. And I'm very interested to hear more about that and how accelerating change affects a person's outlook and decision-making ability. Yeah, that is a lovely topic because it's kind of how I got into foresight. To give the kind of, I think the coolest analogy for me was there's this thing called the cosmic calendar. If anyone ever saw the series in the 1980s or 90s called Cosmos, Carl Sagan's famous series that he did on TV, right? Well, it was the second episode of that series where he put all the interesting things that have happened in the universe on a calendar, right? 13 billion years of universe's life, 12-month calendar. And what he showed was with this calendar is everything after the midpoint, like June or July, it just gets faster and faster. There's like more and more stuff happening in the universe. And then as you get to Earth in the last few months of that calendar, it just goes crazy. And this is, we all learned at some point in high school, we all learned that like all of human history is just this tiny little blip on the end of that. And then you focus in on that blip and things just go faster and faster the closer you get to the present time, right? And so I wanted to understand that better so I read his book on that topic, Dragons of Eden, and that got me to Alvin Toffler, who was a famous futurist from the 20th century. He wrote a book called Future Shock in 1970. And this was the first book that introduced this idea that the modern world change is going to keep going so much faster that you're going to have a psychological problem adapting to it. And as Eric Hoffer said, in times of rapid change, it's the learners that inherit the future. Those who are not constantly learning find themselves beautifully equipped to address a world that no longer exists. That was the full quote, right? <laughs> wow. Isn't that interesting? So unlearning is as important as learning the faster things go. What are the things I know that just ain't so anymore <laughs> or that no longer are so? <laughs> I was just going to say, everything you're saying, the thing that keeps coming to my brain is you literally have to be willing to let go of personal bias. Am I right? Because otherwise, what you're talking about is just such a radical shift of really being willing to let go of a lot of knowns or personal knowns, right? Jumping off the cliff into a whole new unlimited possibility kind of a situation. I think that's it. I think we have to keep all four of those cover assessments in our head and ask ourselves, am I doing enough of each of them? And am I fighting the fight between them? And if I have a bias, then I have a known that's wrong. I have a known that's no longer true. It's a bias. It's maladaptive. I learned it in some environment where it might have been useful for a while, but it's not now, or it might never have been useful, right? It might have been based on bad data or bad training, right? And how do I get out of that 
thinking fast and slow lists, I think, like 35 biases that we have. That's one of the big things about this book is not only did it describe these two ways of thinking, it says, look, these are all fundamental biases you have, like loss aversion bias and anchoring bias. And there's so many ways where you mentally can get stuck based on limitations of our thinking and our feeling, limitations of them. And so you can get out of that by recognizing those exist and then retraining yourself a little bit. There's a really famous book in my field called Super Forecasting, where they took just ordinary people, they required them to do prediction in markets where they get skin in the game. They quickly discovered is that average people, people who have no technical ability, started out predicting all the experts in lots of fields, including like for intelligence studies for like the future of countries, right? And the reason they did, Emerson, is because those people who were the best predictors, they were constantly bias checking. They were checking their own biases. And then they were not predicting on things that they didn't have enough confidence on. Instead, they were staying in the open-minded frame. Give me more data. I don't know. I need more knowns and unknowns before I'm even willing to give you a vision or a risk, right? And so I think that's a key part of recognizing that they're basic to the universe. The most crazy thing I'm going to say today is that knowns and unknowns are actually baked into physics. There's all these processes where their future is known. There are things like Newtonian mechanics and relativity and thermodynamics, right? Nuclear decay. There's all these incredibly, just give me the equation. I can tell you the future of that thing. There's a whole pile of other things like quantum mechanics and chaos that are fundamentally unpredictable. And if you're not comfortable realizing that there's predictable and unpredictable processes that are going to affect you, right? I know the next time you and I get on, I can say with confidence, you're looking fantastic. And I can say that you're looking the most fantastic you'll probably ever look. Because <laughs> that's just the nature of being a human being, right? And so when you recognize that, well, wow, I have this incredible level of capacity right now. What am I going to do with that? Because in 20 years, my fire's not going to be burning as bright. So am I saving well? Am I investing well? Am I not burning the candle at both ends? How do I preserve what I have now? Because I can actually see my future self. And I know, yes, I'm going to have less capacities in these other areas. But hey, I could be wiser. Hey, I could be richer. Hey, I could have stronger network. If I see my future self with that predictability to know that I can get to that, right? That's the way normal human development works. Then I can rein in some of the things that I might be chasing after today. And that's all in the personal foresight space, right? Is uh, we have to convince ourselves first that that's actually true. And there's a lot of people on, who love the unknown and the creative side where they say, no, I'm just going to make that next big swing. You watch, I'll change everything. And of course, that gets us into trouble, right? So, let me ask you a question. Where does the divine enter in all this? Because you're talking about, you just said something and I lost it, but it's just this idea that you're feeling things you know, subconsciously. You, know, you mentioned that earlier. It just seems to me that God's got a role in all this. Absolutely. I think you're going right to the biggest question, right? Which is, what are the higher powers that we need to be oriented to? And how do we orient to them? right? And how do we try and get better in our understanding of how to live a divine life, right? Those are all like the biggest questions. And I think it starts for me by recognizing that these processes 
that are built into our own psychology and into our societies, there is a huge amount of wisdom there and intelligence and higher power that we will gain as we learn more about them. And they will help us with all of those questions. So it's a really interesting question to ask, how closely do you associate the universe itself that God created with God's self, right? Or do you separate those two, right? It's a really interesting question because the universe is vastly more complex than us and has vastly more wisdom that it will reveal as we get smarter at understanding it and how it applies to us. And I guess St. Thomas of Aquinas and several other early Christian theologists who said study the universe to study to understand the mind of God and the purpose of God, right? And the Christians have all said that man is made in God's image. So the better one understands the nature of man, one can understand much about the nature of God. Although, of course, we're not perfect, but we are in that image of perfection. So I think we each have to ask this question of how do we reconcile progress in science with progress in spiritual belief? Because by definition, everything spiritual, science can't prove or disprove. It requires a leap of faith. It requires, and you may believe that comes from outside of you in some Christian traditions, or it's your personal choice. But in either case, there's a faith leap that's required in your relationship with God and with all anything you consider to be a higher power or divine, right? So I'm curious, I'd love to hear how Amy reconciles that. And also you, Emerson, how do you reconcile what we have learned so far, which is small, right, about the nature of the universe? Or maybe you could say it's a lot compared to what other animals know, right? We're entirely unique in that capability of self-reflection, right? So how do you guys wrestle with that question? That's a great question. I do believe there's in the Bible a spiritual gift that's listed called discernment. And it's my favorite spiritual gift. And just the point of that being any personal self-reflection that comes to me naturally, I attribute that personally out of choice. I attribute that to the Spirit. I believe that was God-given wisdom for me to work on myself, to be aware and conscious of certain things, or as you say, to unlearn things, unlearn habits that aren't fruitful, learn other ways of thinking that are fruitful. And I always attribute that spiritually. I believe that discernment comes from God. That's kind of where I go with it. That sounds to me like the way my father, his kind of model of the triumvirate, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, That's the way he talks about Holy Spirit as this kind of underappreciated thing that can give you discernment. Sounds like you are kind of a lot of overlap with the way he looks at that. What about you, Emerson? So I don't know, and this kind of will lead into sort of where we wanted to go with you and the work we've been doing, because it's been transformational, I think is probably the word that comes to mind. In my mind, there's an absolute, and that God is the ultimate source of truth. And that's where the, the argument stops. For me personally. So then the challenge becomes, and I think it overlaps with what Amy said about discerning and seeing his hand in the day to day, in coincidences, in events. We were even talking about this yesterday on one of our team meetings. And so to then just trust in what I call this flow, I don't know a better way to put it. It's just, I know when I feel I'm aligned 
being human, it's a moving target, but you get that place where it's like, we are right in the flow. It's when I met Alex Craner. That was just me sending an email to a guy who wrote a cool article on a financial blog, and it evolved into this whole investment system that we use exclusively. We're the only ones who have, do this in the US as advisors. I don't know if that answers the question, but I just feel like the truths are there. And again, what's been required of me, both professionally, even in my spiritual life, is to really let go of these boxes, these containers, these limitations. Because, I mean, I've shared with you both personally my background in life and where I came from. The fact I'm even sitting here with the kind of people you both are having a conversation like this. It's a miracle, right? So why would I doubt, why would I put limits on God's influence anywhere You know what I mean? And so I don't know if that answers it, but that's just kind of me. My trust ultimately goes into that and it manifests for me in events and circumstances and the people that coming into my life for different reasons. I think it very much sounds like another version of what Amy was saying, but very specific to kind of personal experience and personal enlightenment that you are lucky enough to get in when you're living by your values, when you're living what you think is a godly life, when you are aligned with those values, and then you get those revelations, right? So that to me, um, I feel that the most important thing we can all do is never run from spiritual questions to ask ourselves, what is our process? And then maybe look over it every so often and discuss it openly with others you trust, like we are doing here. So that to me, that's the closest I feel I can get. I know that if I died at any point, I'd be able to go to God under anybody's vision of what that God might be like and be called to account and be able to honestly say, well, I felt I was keeping that priority right at the top, right? That to me is, that's the most important way that I know, just like a coach will say, I don't care about your performance. Did you do your best today, right? I mean, that's the key question. And this book by Carol Dweck, many people know this mindset, was the first to say, don't praise your kids for what they have but praise them for how hard they worked and did they do their best today, right? That way of thinking, it's called the growth mindset. So then you don't care about where anybody is on the status. You're just caring about their delta, right? Did they move the needle and did they try to move more fundamentally? Did they try to move the needle? Were they doing their best? Because sometimes the environment's gonna defeat you, but you'll go down knowing you did your best. The very best example of this that I've ever heard, and everyone goes back to this, is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, right? You had no control over hardly anything in his environment except how he treated his fellow inmates. And by focusing on eliminating some of the small displeasures and discomforts for them, he kept that growth mindset. When the liberators came and Auschwitz was opened up, Only the people, as he showed in that book, only the people who had that growth mindset, who really were caring about what little deltas can I do to help others? I'm not going to invest emotion in all these coerced things that I can't change, but I'm going to invest it in these things that I can. And that's how I'm going to assess myself at the end of every day as I'm falling asleep. All those people ended up having these wonderful lives and big families and healthy grandkids and great great things happening. And then the ones that didn't have that mindset that did get rescued. He documents the traumas and the ways that they were completely locked in still into reliving that thing over which they didn't have control as their like main defining purpose. Talk about a bias, right? Talk about a bias that you just can't unlearn. We're getting smart enough to help each other now to see these traps 
and to refer to some of the great tools, as you you know me, I'm a book guy, so I'm going to wave books at you that I think really will help because sometimes the right book at the right time for the right person is transformative, right? So I'm going to wave one more. I know I've mentioned to you guys, and I mentioned it early in our, we worked together in our transition talks, right, is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, subtitled Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. What a beautiful subtitle. We don't have to be divided. We don't have to fight each other because there is a huge amount of overlap. And so if we start from the shared values and vision, well, then we can have a constructive conversation about where we disagree. And what he shows in this book is that their science is just now getting smart enough to show us that there are these universal values in all cultures. And half of them are conservative and half of them are liberal. How cool is that? that it's valuable to have a liberal set of values under certain circumstances, and it's valuable to be conservative under others. And then under a third set, it's valuable to kind of mix the two, right? So at the very least, we want to have those three perspectives, that there's a center and there's a right and the left, and they're all going to be useful in different contexts. As we all know, the right is so much better at defense and borders, accountability. The left is so much better at other things. As he shows, these fundamental values on the left are freedom, diversity, equity, trying to make sure everyone has equal opportunity and has a stake, and care. And on the right, they're loyalty, authority, proportionality, people who work harder should get more, and sanctity. And that's the one we just discussed, sanctity. What are your highest values and do you have any? Some folks on the left don't actually think about that in terms of a hierarchy. On the right, it's kind of natural. What is your highest value and what are your most divine sources of inspiration and belief, right? And so it's really neat to see that those ways of thinking seem to be culturally universal. And as he showed, you can always find a culture that doesn't have one of those values. It's been stomped down in that culture. So for a long time, people didn't think they were there. But then all these studies from the last 20 years find them in little kids <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so before they get influenced, <laughs> yeah, they really are those kind of, they have that mindset, that beginner's mindset that we all want to keep our whole life, right? They don't have the unlearning problem that we have. <laughs> That's so real. I just want to say, I could listen to you all day. And for anyone watching, you can kind of see in our introduction, Emerson and I talked about John does consulting for our firm. And you can kind of see it. You can see how he thinks. And I just love that. But we wanted to end with how you do consulting with us and how you've just been such a huge influence to us for the better. And you've given me the words as I'm listening to you. But what I had written down that I wanted to say about you is how you're able to take it from intrapersonal within self to an interpersonal, how you communicate. And you had mentioned in your book that there's personal team and then organizational adaptiveness. And for us, I don't want to speak for Emerson, but personally, you've really helped me learn and unlearn habits and ideas and a way of doing things and a way of thinking and certain perspectives that have led to a better me, a better community within our staff and company, and better meetings with clients and has opened just a door of prospects coming in 
because of things we've discussed in our meetings that have led to us putting it on our website, that have led to people coming. I mean, it fruit is there and the tools you've given are invaluable. And so we just wanted to acknowledge that those consultation meetings, I mean, I'll let Emerson speak for himself, but how wonderful they are for anyone, any business, anywhere, as you can see, just listening to John and how he thinks, how he can take what we're saying and attribute it to other things and challenge you into a different way of thinking is amazing. Yeah, I don't know that I can add to that to what you said, Amy, other than just, John, the inspiration, because you and I started working together. And then all, I mean, and I just know, I go back over our Google document that you've started a year's worth of history in our company. It's actually very humbling. Oh God, I don't want to start crying on the podcast, but to look at the where it started with me bearing some pretty personal fears and concerns I had and these, before Amy came on as partner, that whole process. And then all of a sudden, just that whole transformation, cleaning up the company with the structure and the handbook and just shifting the people. And so I wanted to point out, I know this is where I get tripped up and I can't say all the things I think. You mentioned capacity earlier about seeing your capacity. And I went back and there was a part and you quoted me. It says, I can't see myself doing this at 65. And your response was, but the wisdom you're gaining is valuable. Think of who you can advise develop in the industry. And that is exactly what you were talking about earlier. I wasn't even there. And then all of a sudden, I meant to Amy and and another person in the office at the time with the approach of how can I help you get to where you want to be in five years? That question then just literally set a domino of decisions and the flow. It got me into the flow that I wasn't capable of seeing. And, you know, I can just say, too, in these meetings, I mean, there was one I remember I was in Montana at the time and the three of us were in tears talking about some pretty personal Yeah. I remember. Yeah. And Amy, you summed it up perfectly. What the fruit has been a company that I'm just so proud to be a part of. Just grateful. It's like 65. I mean, I'm ready to just go out and run some marathon every day. I get to work with Amy. We just communicate. There's this trust. It's this constant shift. And I'll stop with this, but we've cut loose that anchor that you were talking about and literally are just going with this. You've been a huge part of it. And you just, you know, I know you said it, but it's good to document it on this <laughs> interview. So it never goes away. Anyway. Emerson, um, Amy, I'm so honored to be on this journey with you for as long as is helpful. You guys are doing it all yourself. I just feel privileged to have found, well, first to have been able to get this freedom to really try and understand this world of foresight from this basic principles perspective, and then to have found all this useful stuff that's useful enough, the teams that I share it with, everybody finds some pieces of it that really does work for them, where they can get an unlock and they can get out of whatever cul-de-sacs they might have been in. I always go back to Dostoevsky's famous quote from Anna Karenina, first sentence of one of the greatest books by one of the greatest writers in literature, happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are unhappy each in their own way. And then it tells a story of some happy and unhappy families. And it's such an insight to realize that there's so many ways to fall off the mark, right? To sin in the classic Christian tradition of the word, right? To miss the mark. So many ways. There's really only a few ways through the eye of that needle. There's only a few. Understanding those ways, meditating on them every so often, as we try and do with our transition consulting, asking questions of ourselves that might unlock that. But meditating on the happy family, the happy self, the happy, and now we're talking happy in this terms of adaptation, generally adaptive, not just 
locally, but in any environment you're going to be in, right? There's a lot we can learn. And I've just tried to collect some of those examples of what is the most generally adaptive ways of feeling and thinking and relating. And it's never going to be a complete process. But if we give ourselves that permission, we break out of the unhappy family script. You know, I'm not happy with the way my mother relates to me, or I'm not happy with bad decisions I made in the past, but okay, there's lots of ways to fail. I don't need to make that my life story. I can go back to what Maslow called the peak experience summaries, right? I can do a peak experience summary of the times when I have been most happy and most what I consider my authentic self. I do that summary in my head and suddenly I'm back into that zone of growth, of potential for seeing what I can be. And I don't see myself as that failure or that whatever it is that is keeping me from the word that I like most now is flourishing, right? It's not just a prosperous future. That's a good word, prosper. That's economic. It's not just a thriving future. You know, I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's nice. Thrive. That's a mental word. I like that word. Flourish. That comes from the root to flower. What does that mean? That means I'm out there planting seeds all the time. Those seeds may not even grow to the flower. I might die before they do. But I am seeing the whole world as a garden. My job is to plant those flowers and care for them to grow, whether they're my kids or my relationships with my friends, whatever it is. I want the whole thing to flourish. Human flourishing, man, how do you do that? That's pretty close, I would argue, to what life itself does as a system. Life is constantly figuring out how to flourish more. And for me, life is the most amazing, miraculous thing God has created, right? That I can easily access and see. Besides the direct enlightenment I might get from contemplating God, there is this amazing thing too, right? So for me, it's I'm going to be going back and forth between those two, right? I'm going to be thinking about, as St. Thomas would say, I'm going to be trying to contemplate these higher ways of thinking by looking at everything around me and truly be, truly appreciating it. And there's nothing more diverse, amazing, exuberant than this stuff that we're made of. It's like the, like I said to you when I first started, the most incredible thing I've ever come across is how an egg you can't even see makes us. It's not the brain. The brain is just a subset of that. <laughs> it's this. It's this entire flourishing thing. It's so incredible that it exists and that this whole ecosystem is self-regulating and creating that accelerating complexity. See, this is the positive through line on the side of the negative. The negative is, oh my gosh, it's like crazy, it's overwhelming. Well, yes, it can be if we focus on it from that perspective and say, well, I'm responsible for it, but I'm not. I'm not responsible for the whole thing. The whole thing is responsible for the whole thing. The whole thing, right? Under the higher power, right? The whole thing. So I just can do my piece and I can try and become more like it. Right. That word flourish has a special significance to Amy and I, which I'll let her close out on that as we kind of thank you. For, and I think one thing's pretty obvious. We're going to need to have another 
interview because there's just so much to talk about. John, I just, again, want to reiterate how much I've appreciated what you've brought to the table. You know, when you talk about the flow and you see like this purpose in life, Darcy, I mentioned, she heard you at the conference 20 years ago. It was her idea to pull you in last year for our event and then to find this complete role you've had. I mean, even just the timing, Amy and I talk about this a lot, just for whatever reason, those Fridays meetings we have when they come about, it's just like, man, it's like the, our batteries, because we're down here, we're down in the trenches so much. And it's honestly, for me to get up here is a lot of work. It's actually exhausting. And then even to know where to go. So you've been, like I said, just huge. And for anybody, you know, any business owner or somebody who's really looking for somebody to just come at it from a completely different place. We started talking about how within our industry, it is very bias oriented in a lot of ways. And I didn't know what to expect when I began to pull you in at all. I had no, I mean, I could have never predicted where the path we've gone on. It would have never entered my universe. Yeah, we started with this, right? We did a yeah. strengths finder assessment, uh, which yeah. I recommend. It's in the appendix of my book. And that's a great way to start you in to saying, how do you think about the future? It's a very helpful kind of tool. Well, yeah, but I would discount your role in that as a human. So I just, first of all, I want to thank you for your time today and for the continued influence you've had. I love our business. I love our firm. I love what we stand for. I love the fact that we're at a place where we literally are very committed to not only principles, but to the type of people we work with, who we really know we can help. I mean, it's just, everything's just tightened up in a very, very positive, inspired way. And so I'm going to just say my thank you to you for the, your time today, as well as the influence you've had in my life and also the firm. And Amy, I'll let you finish it off. Yeah. To continue the love, I love you, John. I love my business partner and my staff, and I love my clients. When Emerson asked me, which now would have been about seven to eight months ago to be his business partner, I told him, yes, and I will pray about it. And I shared with him what I got. I was nervous. If anyone watched a couple podcasts ago, I wanted to be a dancer. I was nervous to join, be a partner in a financial industry, not because I didn't want to, because I just felt like um, a giving up of something else that had meant a lot to me, which I later discovered it was not. That's not what it was at all. But I did journal what I felt um, the spirit tell me was that if you move forward, you will flourish and Emerson will flourish and your business will flourish. There were three separate things, but I shared with him that word. And so we always talk about it like eight months later because it was proven to be true. But yeah, we always talk about flourishing. So it's just very interesting that you brought that word up, but I don't think there's any better ending to this interview than that than the gift of seeing a spoken word come to fruition. I don't think there's a better feeling for me personally. So thank you, John, for everything. And we look forward to the next time. <laughs> Amen. Amen. That was amazing. Thank you guys so much. It's such a privilege to have this time with you. And I hope the listeners got some value out of the questions we asked ourselves and the conversations we had. Emerson Fersh and Amy Lenoble are registered representatives and securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors, LLC. 
Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risk including possible loss of principal.